0: Welcome, everybody. It is August 2nd, a Sunday. Seth and I got together uh, earlier this week, and we pre-recorded this as I'm out of town. And uh, so I just wanted to tell you that. Let's begin with a word of prayer. We'll get into our text, which is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to pick it up at verse 3 and work through to verse 12. Just to let you know, after verse 12, 13 to the end of the chapter, are awesome passages about the resurrection in times to the church then that will be uh, aired uh, live for you on August 9th Sunday August 9th so join us back live on that teaching because it's going to be really important let's pray lord uh, come to you and thank you for your word that we can study it pray your spirit will be with us uh, as we grow and uh, consider what you have to say things i say wrong that are false forgive me And uh, help us to just move forward. Bless Seth as he gets all the technical stuff right for this. And help those believers who are watching from home and in the archives in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we read in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 the following and talked quite a bit about it, especially in the Q&A as Paul said to the believers then, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. And every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in the lust of uh, concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, As we have forewarned you and testified, for God has not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. He therefore that despises, despises this command which we have given, meaning despises not man, uh, but God who has given unto us his Holy Spirit. So let's quickly rework through verses 3, which we did cover last week, but I just feel the need to articulate a little bit more about that as we work through it. And if you're a fan of uh, Heart of the Matter, you might hear some stuff repeated today here in this recorded sermon. Anyway, Paul said to the believers of Thessalonica, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Remember, that bride had to be holy, pure, without spot or wrinkle, and the call to holiness was frankly upon them, the children of God, as the bride, and it's upon us as believers today. In that day, the directive was really specific from Paul, avoid fornication, especially as it was in connection to idol worship. And I gave the context of that last week. When you think about it, fornication, for instance, regular old sex with somebody else uh, in a Christian's life is a form of idolatry. We talked about how uh, fornication is tied to idolatry in scripture. And that in that day, last week, we talked about how this was uh, having sexual relations with temple prostitutes that Paul was specifically speaking about. But nevertheless, uh, sexual involvement with somebody that you shouldn't be having sexual relationships with is a form of idolatry. When you think because God has said, I want you to abstain and avoid that type of thing, unless it's in the proper uh, setting. And... um, To say, I'm not going to do that, I'm going to do what I want, is to say, I care more about this material person and my engagement with them than in my relationship with God and His desires for me. So the fact of the matter is, in reality, that our flesh, when we are involved in, in sins of the flesh, is stronger than our spirit. And we, as humans, we feed the needs and wants of our flesh often, ahead of the needs of our spirit. It's really simple every Sunday morning when you wake up, if you want to use Sunday as the day, uh, and you have a chance to lounge and eat and do whatever, or you have a chance to study the word. You know, feeding the spirit is not as often as enticing and fun as feeding the flesh. And so we're constantly faced with this dilemma as believers. By summarizing it down this way, that it's a it's a it's a conflict between spirit and flesh, it allows us to arrive at the antidote or the or the um, um, solution to this problem that every human faces between flesh and spirit. The standard way that religion has gone about this war. Uh, is to condemn and criticize and judge people who are having sex and they say, don't have sex, this is evil, you are bad, you need to be condemned, you need to be judged. And, and that's just the natural religious way to approach it. The demand for holiness of the saints then is, uh, it's present in scripture. You can't avoid it if you're a serious student of the Bible. And we talked about why this was The case in the early church because they were Jesus' bride. But the call to holiness remains a principle in the lives of sons and daughters today. And because that's the case, I suggest we need to revisit and examine what's the best method to approach getting people to understand the the righteousness and holiness that God would love to be present in his sons and daughters uh we know that religion chooses to look at the law. Thou shalt not. Don't do this. Don't. Don't. And we know that the religions use discipline and they will judge people and they will condemn them and they will discipline them and they will uh, use their own anger at times and disgust. I can't believe that they do that. Get out of our presence, right? You are unholy. And so I suggest that in this age, that there's a different method that should be incorporated into our lives as believers and for a number of different reasons. But the primary method by which we as believers approach um, sin in our lives, what we call sin, uh, which I would just say, which is the primary way that we approach the flesh of our lives is through long suffering and through patience and kindness and mercy and and love for each other, which is uh, the fruit of the Spirit, love. So um, let's just put this to an example. Let's compare two ways that we can approach believers who are not living what we would call holy lives, sanctified lives, uh, the way that Scripture describes them. Uh, Do we want to continue to approach them in the religious way, or do we want to approach them in a way that the scripture describes that's often overlooked and I support the latter and I think that we should remove ourselves from the religious ways because of a number of reasons which are I will explain in a second. So a congregate comes to a reverend or pastor or priest or bishop or somebody and they make the uh, claim that they are fornicating with their neighbor in an adulterous relationship addicted to pornography some sexual sin, which Paul has addressed here in his letter to the Corinthians. And depending on the denomination and frankly on the attitude and the heart of the pastor, uh, a number of things will be the result of this confession which the person has made. Uh, One, the automatic one, which is often the case, is they will say, that needs to stop. You need to stop that now, right? So, and, and what is that? We have... A person who is spirit and we have a person who is flesh and they say, you need to stop that now. They are focusing on the flesh stopping the sinful activity when they say that. Another thing that they often say is you need to uh, pay. You need to be disciplined because you have sinned against the body and especially you need to be disciplined if you don't stop that activity now. Right. It must be stopped now. You must stop it. Stop what? Your flesh. And so it's all upon you to get that done. And we notice in this approach that God isn't mentioned really initially and that the spirit isn't mentioned as fortifying the person and as being there. It's the person. Right. And that's a fleshly approach. And that could lead to another thing that religions do and they excommunicate. And they can do that just with their members, not talking or having association with the, with the convicted soul. Or they could, um, they could show some sort of discipline like an elders board. And then they also expect and demand, and if you don't show this, there's often repercussions, of contrition and, and feeling bad. And if you are not feeling bad outwardly for the crime, uh, organized religion doesn't appreciate that and it wants something more from you. It wants you to humbly come broken and everything and show that. That's really big. And then you, in some cases, need to confess to the church. The basis for these things are because in the New Testament, like what we just read now, where Paul says to the believers at Thessalonica, avoid fornication. That's in the scripture. So when believers today read that 2,000 years later, They still think, okay, it says that we need to do that. And if someone's not avoiding fornication, we need to implement those steps I just uh, explained to you. And then once those things have happened, often there's more modern man-made stuff that goes on. And that includes accountability groups and pastor counseling with the person every week. And I'm not against counseling. I think counseling is great. But I'm just saying, I'm just describing the religious approach to sins of the flesh that I think needs to be revisited. And then once the congregate has overcome the sin, they've stopped looking and participating in the porn, or they've broken off the relationship, or whatever it is, stopping it altogether. They've shown appropriate contrition. They make the steps possible for reconciliation. They will be absolved of the crime in some cases, some cases, the crime is never forgiven, never forgotten by people, and they are treated as a person with a scarlet letter on their shoulder for the rest of their lives. And that's religion. It happens in many, the bigger the institution, the bigger the scarlet letter. And that, and when it comes to leadership and, and whatever else. Now, I have to emphasize that that is the way of the New Testament. And uh, why was it that way? Uh, why was that approach of the apostles? And I have to cover it quickly. Jesus was coming back to take his bride. And she, because she was going to be the bride of Christ. Remember, he's holy. The bride is going to be holy. She's not going to be a, a prostitute or a whore, like the whore of Babylon. She's got to be holy. And so the New Testament had these apostles. And 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 if you don't believe that Jesus wanted his bride holy... You read his description to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three and see how he talks to them. Because it's not like the gentle shepherd who says, I, you know, woman caught in adultery, I forgive you. You know, it's, and he's, it's not that Jesus. It's a different approach he has with them. And it's pretty darn strong. So remember, though, remember the context. The bride was able to be holy because of a few things that we often overlook that were going on at that time when we read the New Testament narrative. First of all, there were living apostles that Jesus left with them. They had seen his resurrected body. They had witnessed him completely, even Paul. And they were called to go out and suffer for what they were going to do. And they were willing to suffer, having been trained by Christ. And they had the embodiment of supernatural power to discern and to govern and to oversee churches in different places as a means to keep that bride together and holy without blemish and without spot. The bride, too, was bestowed upon with great spiritual gifts. And so they, too, had the spirit really, really reigning in their lives over their fleshly tendencies and when the spirit is present and strong in a believer, the flesh tends to fall away. So they, as the bride, were gifted by the Holy Spirit and miracles were done by the apostles at that time. The other thing about it is it was that the, the number of believers were extremely small relative to what we see in the world today, for sure. Even relative to what we see even in the Western United States, even in probably maybe even Utah. But, Christians were being killed off, they were being persecuted, they were dropping from the faith because of all sorts of things, and the number of believers called from the nation of Israel, Jews, and the number of uh, Gentiles that converted and were in the churches were not in the hundreds of thousands. They were more like in the 10,000 max at most, if at all that number because of death and and suffering and everything else. So the bride was a small, small, manageable group by the 12 apostles, and as they died off, by lesser and lesser of them, that's why the church became more and more difficult to manage and fell into sin, and then also the abundance of the Holy Spirit upon them. Revelation talks about 144,000 of them not even being defiled by women. That's how it puts it. So we know that there was a holiness, we know there was an ability, we know there was an environment, there were apostles, there were circumstances, the Holy Spirit, to keep that bride in place without spot, without sin, and without holiness. And so we read that and we say, that's how the church needs to be today. And we forget a number of of things that are not Um, present in the body today that were present then. And we forget that God himself said, when I wrap that age up, I am going to bring in a new covenant, a better covenant. And I'm not going to be working with the nation of Israel and their laws. And I'm not going to be working with the bride of Christ and keeping her holy and without spot for Jesus to come and take her. I'm going to be working with the world and in working with the world, I am going to be focusing on individuals and my relationship with them. And so the collective thing was done away with. Read Hebrews chapter 12, where God says, I'm going to get rid of anything that can be shakable in this, in this age of fulfillment. I'm going to shake it to the dust and anything that can be shaken. Man-made edifices, principles, priesthoods, demands, uh, corporations, whatever it is in the faith. Whatever can be shakable, he says, I'm going to shake it down. So the only thing that remains is what cannot be shaken. What cannot be shaken? What is personal? What is spiritual? What is inside each individual, right? And so within each individual, God says in Jeremiah that he will write his laws upon minds and hearts. And at the, as the bride was taken that we read about in the New Testament... We entered into a new age, and that is the age we're talking about now. And so therefore, we are left with a faith that is subjective and operating in individuals. And every individual will die and go to God separately and individually of the church they belong to. They're not part of the bride. They're not part of the nation of Israel. And so we have this individual existence of the body of Christ around the world, how do we approach someone in that in that body of people who says, I'm doing my neighbor, that I'm caught up in, in fleshly sin? What's the approach, right? So, men have ignored the passages where God says, I'm going to establish a new covenant. I'm going to shake everything down. And they have repeatedly tried to resurrect or bring about the apostolic church and keep it going. And they do that by and through how they govern it, by having communion, by having different rituals and rites that have to be a certain way. And they have propagated this. And so we've had many, many approaches to how to do it while they've ignored that it's an individual relationship. The approach now to somebody whose flesh is reigning, is not the same approach that we read about in Scripture. It's not that God doesn't want us to be holy. He does, even today, as His believers. But the method by which we bring people to that state of holiness and help them to see the error of their fleshly ways is very, very different than what was going on with the apostles over the bride. So a person comes and says, I'm doing this or that in my life. And I would say in the age of fulfillment and as a pastor or as a, we're not using that word anymore, as a teacher, I would say, well, what's doing this or that? What's sleeping with your neighbor? And they would say, I'm doing this or that. And I would say, are you a Christian? And hopefully they would say, yes. Yes. And I would say, do you understand that as a Christian, that you became a Christian because you were forgiven and because God gave you a, a, a you're a new creation and you have a new image and you have, uh, you've become new. And did you know that as that Christian, it's impossible for you to sin as that Christian understand? in that identity of having been saved by grace through faith and you have been given a new identity, that being cannot sin. And so is it you, the Christian, I would say, that is doing this or that thing? And they would probably flounder. And then I would turn with them to uh, Romans and I would cite chapter 7 where Paul himself as an apostle writing to the church at Rome Says the following about himself. Listen carefully. He says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I am carnal, sold under sin. That's looking at his flesh. He's talking about his flesh there. I do not understand my own actions, he says. For I do not do what I want. That's his spirit, that's his his new creation. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. That's his flesh. So we have a duality of persons going on here. Who's he going to look to as the one to focus on and look and believe and and empower, right? He says, Now, if I do what I don't want in the flesh, I agree the law is good. Don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't kill. I agree from the flesh that the law is good. He says, so then it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Did you hear that? It's no longer I, the Christian, the new creation in Christ that does it, but it's the sin that dwells in my flesh. That's what he decides there. Keep listening. For I know that nothing good dwells within me, meaning, he says, that is my, in my flesh. He's distinguishing between spirit and flesh. There's no good thing that dwells in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I can't do it. My will can say, I'm a Christian, I can, I can will it in my mind, but, but he says, but I cannot do it, meaning in my flesh. He says, for I do not do the good I want. Flesh, but the evil I do not want is what I do, flesh. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that does it, but sin which dwells in me. Let me read that again. Now, if I do what I don't want in the flesh, it's no longer I that does it. He's talking about who we are in Christ as individuals, by the Spirit. It's no longer Christ in me that's doing that. He says, but sin which dwells within me. That's what's doing it. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, Spirit, evil lies close at hand, right at the hand of the flesh. It's right there. For I delight in the law of God in my innermost self, spirit. But I see in my members, in my flesh, another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells in my flesh. It's amazing. And he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, exclamation point. Listen to the summary. So then I of myself serve the law of God with my mind. I of myself. That's his identity. Serve the law of God with my mind. That's what God has given us. A new mind, a new heart. But with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. There is so much being said there. I would ask the person who's confessing of sin to me. So who or what is fornicating or sleeping with their neighbor or is watching porn? Who is it relative to what Paul said? And if they were listening, they would have to say, it's my flesh. And I would say, are you your flesh? Is that who you are? Are you that part of your existence that is, gets sick, that gets fat, that is, gets tooth decay, that could get cancer, that is going to take a last breath and is going to be put into a grave and is going to corrode any, uh, to nothing but dust? Is that who you are? They would have to say, no, that's not me. Well, then what, who are you? Well, I'm the, the being that's going to continue on. That's who I am. And as a new creature in Christ, that's my real identity. Not the covering of my new identity. That's just the covering. And this covering is no good, right? So we don't focus on the covering. We don't talk about the covering in, in terms of, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. We don't talk about that way, you see. So then I would say, well, who's fornicating? And they would say, my flesh. And I would say, are you your flesh? Is that what's going to go on to God? Which is why I believe in a spiritual resurrection as it's supported by 1 Corinthians 15. And not a, a fleshly resurrection at all. No. And they would say, My flesh is going to die and erode away forever, but my spirit that has been given to me by God, new creation in Christ, is going to go to Him. Oh, that's an important uh, revelation that we have. Right? And then I would, and, and then I would say, so then when you are having trouble with your flesh, when you're sinning, as we call it, when you're going and doing things with that body. What you're really saying here, Bill, Susan, is your flesh has overcome the new creation that God has given you. That's, that's the way to teach that. And, uh, and they would say, I suppose so. And then I'd have to make something really, really clear, which I want to make clear to you now. So when you say that you are doing this or that, I want you to understand that what you're really saying, or should be saying, is I have allowed my flesh, this thing that's going to die, this thing that's corrupt, to overtake my new creation, and I have allowed that to overshadow my heart and my mind and my new life and spirit, and that I would make them sort of repeat it. And I would have them say, I have allowed my flesh, which is my former person, which should be dead, which should be laid in the grave, to reign over what Christ has given me by his grace, which is my new identity, which is who I really am. And with that, I would say, so then, what is the solution then? What's the solution between the disparity of what you would do, what you would like to do, what you would even will to do if possible and what your flesh is doing what's the solution and they and here's this is key they in a religious sense would say i have to change i have to really work hard i've got to focus on overcoming my flesh and if it's porn they'll say I need to take my computer and put it in a place where others can see it. And they would say, I need an accountability partner. I need to have a program on my computer where someone else can see if I've, if I've tuned into flesh, uh, to looking at porn. And you know what that is? That's flesh managing flesh. It's called religion. And we rely on that, and we think it's great. We think it's good. And, and, and there probably are some benefits to that. The military understands the benefits to it. The Mormons understand the benefits to flesh, monitoring flesh. That's what they're all about. It's just flesh, managing flesh. If they were in an adulterous affair, they'd say, I've got to just break it off. Right? And, uh, but then they would add something important. They would say, I should repent. I should repent. All right? And I would stop them at that moment. And I would say. Repentance means a change of mind. It means that you know what sin is. And you don't want it to be part of your life. Like Paul who says, oh wretched man that I am. What I want to do, I don't do. And what I do, I don't want to do. thats He's repented. His mind says I'm doing something wrong. That's the Repentance. Now, if the Christian says, I think it's great that I'm having an adulterous affair and there's nothing wrong with it, then they need to repent. But I would question the Holy Spirit within them, because when God is in you, Christ is giving you a new identity. We know already by the Spirit when we're going to, what we're doing and and the sins that we commit before we do them. So repentance isn't necessary. Your mind has already been changed. That's why you're confessing to the, uh, the to the licentious behavior, is because you know that what you're doing is incorrect, because God in you is going to make that very very clear. You don't need a, a pastor, or a bishop, or anyone to tell you that. You know if you're a Christian, right? So then, what do you do? You you if if. You, I would say, did you know that you were doing something wrong when you entered into the affair? When you did this with the person? And if they're honest, which I hope they would be, they would have to say, yeah, I knew. Because we know. So I would say, if that's honest, then um, you knew it was wrong. Your new identity knew what you were going to do is wrong. Your mind... That Christ gave you is not the problem. It doesn't need to be changed. It needs to be fortified. It needs to be fed. Nourished. Renewed. Uh, New perspective. Right? But the, the word repent in that sense is not applicable to the Christian because they already know. The trouble I would say is that their flesh has convinced the, their, their, uh, their new person that it gets to do what it wants, and it's okay. And uh, the flesh is operating in the way that the flesh always operates. So I would say, what does a Christian do? What does, oh, wretched man, what, what, what do I do? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall save me? It's the same question every one of us have to come to. And if they're catching on, they would see and come to the conclusion that they need to fortify and feed the spirit, the new person. And they need to know that when the spirit is strong, the flesh is weak. And the spirit will overcome. And the spirit will cause them with the mind that says, I don't want to do this, to walk away often. Paul didn't even admit That he walked away from his flesh. He says, Therefore, all I can say is, With my mind, I will serve the law of God, with with my flesh, the law of sin. He admitted that it was going to be in his life. And that's something I think is really important to understand as Christians that we don't ever think we've got to the point where sin is out of our flesh. It will always sin, always. It won't be mortified to the point because it is flesh. That's like saying a bear is never dangerous. You can get a bear to the point where it can juggle and and do things, and you can trust it. You cannot trust a bear. A wild bear, a bear of any kind, will rip your head off someday when you think it's your best friend. Because it's a bear, your flesh will always do what flesh does. So the solution is not fleshly focus, it's spirit focus. And that's a change between what we're reading in the New Testament from Paul to the believers then and what is here today when God is working with individuals. And it's that kind of counseling that we walk people through. I would also, just to let you know, suggest and let them know that because a flesh is always flesh and is always going to do evil, that because their flesh is doing a certain type of evil, doesn't mean that their flesh is, is more evil in the sense of, in what God sees, than others. What I mean by that is, for some people, sexual sin is big. For some people, being mean and gossipy is big. For other people, getting revenge, uh, and all the other crimes of the flesh are are, uh, big. Just because somebody has the fleshly sin of sexual sin does not mean that, that they are in God's eyes worse than a person who has the uh, uh, fleshly sin of gossip and meanness. Flesh is flesh. We come to the table with different problems in it. I know people whose flesh uh, is homosexual. I know people whose flesh is murderous. I know people whose flesh is extremely hypersexual. I know people whose flesh is catered toward children. I know people whose fleshes uh, cater to gluttony, and and to drunkenness, and to anger, and whatever it is, our flesh will do that. And that is what Christ came to do: is, is give us a solution to that. Because if you war against it alone, it's just called religion, and it's a nightmare. But that spirit, and I can I can t- tell you in my own life, I did this because Mormonism could never remove the animal. The bear was always walking around. I just cut the hair off of it and put on a human mask and pretended like I was fixed. But the Mormon church could never fix the flesh because religion can't. But the spirit, when I received Christ by the roadside, and after a few years learned I have to feed that spirit and nourish that spirit and read his word and be tuned to the things of the spirit, the flesh began to naturally atrophy as the Spirit grew stronger and stronger. I did my own self-test on it, and I know that it works. So, in terms of just today, counseling people, which I think is the same uh, advice Paul would have given people then, in addition to his apostolic leadership and the Spirit and commands, is go to God. Go to God as a believer, you are His, with your flesh, and say, I'm having issues. You can, you can say, I really like what I'm doing in my flesh. I'm enjoying this. In fact, the faith is really tiresome to me. It's not paying off. You can say anything to God because he is the creator of your new heart and your new mind, your new spirit. And so he is there and he's working with you. So get God in the mix. And then ultimately, you might begin to see that what's calling you to tell you that what you're doing is wrong needs to be fed and it needs to be nourished. And that comes by the washing of the Word. And to hear the Word and through, of course, your own personal communications with God and whatever else you incorporate in to your life. Fellowship with other like-minded believers is good. Fellowship with people who don't live by the flesh but live by the Spirit or try, that's good. Things like that. And let feed the Spirit. And I would tell them to relax. And I would tell them to remember that the, the sins of their flesh, which they are involved in at the moment, we're paid for by Christ completely and that that stuff's going to go to the grave. It should go to the grave now, but not literally. And uh, and then it would literally go to the grave ultimately and decay. And who they are, we're building that inner woman and that inner man. And uh, of course, you follow up and say, how are they doing and everything else? The only exception I have ever taken in my life in terms of ministry is when people are a danger to other people. We have some violent people by nature whose flesh reigns. They become very aggressive. They do uh, threatening things to other people. And I I think that's when you say the bear is too loose. You got to go out until the spirit reigns over that bear. And it's not a punishment. It's just the reality of protecting others. Religion and its ways have never worked effectively ever since people have been trying to incorporate it into the The group, it just does not uh, effectively work. God knew this, and that's why he instituted what he did. So going back to Paul, that's a lot to say, but that's what you have to say when you're teaching the scripture verse by verse. He said, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Okay, now, that's a line that continues to be true. God wants the sanctification of his children today. 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, during the apostolic church. And that's that growing by faith in the Spirit and producing the fruits of love. And that comes in and through the process we just talked about and not by religion. Verse 4, because we covered verse 3 last week, says that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. Note the personal responsibility intrinsic in this passage. Paul says that every one of you should know how to possess his or her vessel in sanctification and honor. That is a totally independent, subjective liberty that Paul gives to each individual believer then. You know, right, and this knowledge, I submit, comes by and through the Spirit and understanding His Word and how it applies to you in your life. It is subjectively applied knowledge, but knowledge is objectively delivered. Now I want to explain that really quickly. Truth is truth, but our interpretation and application of truth respective to our individual lives takes that truth and modifies it to our situation. Uh, I love to eat. If I want, if God said he didn't, but if he said, I want everybody to be at 8% body fat, then I would have to know I can't hang out at Del Taco to work. That God says I want to everyone to have 8% or less body fat, that I take that objective truth and then I apply it to my life and I say, I shouldn't go and work at Del Taco. That it's, it's objective truth, just subjective lives. Nobody in life would say alcoholism is a good thing. True hard alcoholism, that it's a, a benefit. So God says alcoholism, bad, right? And uh, God would love no one to be an alcoholic. However, that's the objective truth. Alcoholism, bad and destructive, okay? The subjective truth is, I can have a few beers every week and it doesn't matter. You see how that works? We do have his objective truths, you know, but we also have the subjective. It's on the two lane highway in our relationship with him. We have free will. He says, this is not good. You decide how it applies to you. And that's what Paul is saying there. He says, every one of you should know how to possess in your vessel sanctification and honor. And so it becomes a subjective uh, decision on your part on how you want to do it. And I can't emphasize that enough. We discover in Paul's words, the onus of every person to discover how to possess their vessel, meaning their bodies, their flesh, in sanctification and honor. But Paul adds the following as a means to narrow the field down. Remember to the bride, not in the lust of, I'm having trouble with that word today. Concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which knew not God. Not in the lust of concupiscence even as the Gentiles which knew not God. The term concupiscence is an old big word and it means not in longing for that which is forbidden. Not in concup- the lusting of concupiscence. Okay? And he's warning them. Remember, it's mind over matter, literally. And he's telling them, don't do what the Gentiles do who don't know God and spend your time lusting for that which is forbidden. Right? It's a crime uh, of the soul and it's the, it, it empowers the flesh. It all starts in the mind and you start empowering the flesh. You have that problem. So let the spirit reign and don't allow yourself to lust in concupiscence. It's anybody who's ever been in lust for something that is forbidden, understands that line, lust of concupiscence. Um, It's the crime at the heart of adultery. And uh, Paul here uh, ties that state of mind to the Gentiles, to the pagans, that they lusted after the forbidden things. And he tells these believers, don't do that. So if you've ever been uh, tempted with adultery, there are few terms that describe it better, and really any flesh of the uh, sins of the flesh, it's all lusting after that which is forbidden. And so he says, Avoid it. And then he adds an important line for context that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we ha- also have forewarned and testified. So because of the context, I would say that Paul is talking about um, something we know here. Taking the passage all by itself. It's sound advice just by itself. That no man should go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner because that the Lord is the avenger of such as we also have forewarned and testified of you. Jesus is coming back. He will take revenge on those who defraud their neighbor as we have warned you. That's what he's saying. Don't go beyond and defraud your brother. All right? Paul has talked about the lust of concupiscence, fornication. He's talked about the the flesh here, and now he sort of summarizes it, and he says, that no man goes and defrauds his brother in any manner, in any manner He's been talking about sexual crimes and now he says that no man defrauds his brother in any manner. I would say uh, uh, that, uh, and he adds, because the uh, Lord is the avenger of such and we have forewarned you and testified. So the word avenger means he's the punisher. Don't do that. He says, for God has called us, verse 7, has not called us unto uncleanliness, but unto holiness. So there's that call again to the bride to be holy. All right. There's no getting around the fact that this was a call on their lives as Christians in that time, in that day. And as described, I submit that the call continues with the on all believers, but perhaps a, a little explanation will help <clears throat> to the nation of Israel. God would physically punish them. For their sin. He would would have things happen to them as a nation. One of them could do something and the nation could suffer. So that's the big macro picture that we start off with in the Old Testament. All right? When we come to the New Testament, which is a bridge between the Old and the New Covenant, we have Jesus coming up and he wraps up the former age and the response is uh, kind of hangs in the balance. And so they were promised protection if they walked in the faith and they avoided those sins. So the Old Testament, if you sin, you are going to have the avenger come upon you. In the New Testament, Jesus said, look to me, have faith, and avoid those sins, and you will not have me come upon you. There was a faith and, and, and a control bit there. So it kind of bridges both in terms of what God was going to do to them. For the early nascent church, the setting for them was a balance Uh, between what was and what was to come. What was the Old Testament, what was to come the New Testament. It merged. And then we have the, the other age that we live in now. So we have this merging going on. Once the wrath of God fell upon those people then, when he became the punisher and avenger for their sin, the former age was wrapped up. We enter into that third age. Not the New Testament, not the Old Testament, a third age of everything having been completed, wrapped up, God reconciled to humankind. But this does not mean that individuals are not accountable still in this age for their, before their maker for how they choose to live and what they choose to do, which is why we gather together to learn to be strengthened in our new identity of the Spirit. When it comes to being Christian, God has not called us to uncleanliness. It's a very simple premise he calls us to his holiness, which is first meted out by the imputation of Christ into our lives, his righteousness upon belief. That's the first stage of holiness. And it continues through sanctification as we let Christ dwell and reign over our flesh, we are sanctified more and more, proven by the fruit that we manifest as our, in our lives as mature believers. So, Paul now lets us know at the heart, the heart of those who reject these insights to the church, then. And he says at verse 8, He therefore that despises, despises not man, but God, who has given all of us his Holy Spirit. The key to this passage is the last line, in my estimation, where speaking of God, Paul says, If you despise men, you're not despising men. You're not despising me who's telling you this. You're despising God. And he adds, who has given us the Holy Spirit, which is a reference that we, in fact, as individuals are in charge of our bodies to know what is good and what is not. And so if you're despising what I'm saying, you're not despising me. You're despising God. All right, that brings us to verse 9. And it throws us a complete curveball when you first read it. And we're going to read 9 through 12, and we'll wrap it up with this point. Listen closely Because it's important. In verse 9 through 12, he says, But as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia, which we beseech you, brethren, that you may increase more and more. Second time he's used that phrase in this uh, book that you study to be quiet and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk honest toward them that are without and that you may have lack of nothing. Now, go back with me. In, uh, go back to uh, uh, verse 12. But, he says, he has been warning them about fornication, the lust of concupiscence. He's been warning them about the flesh. He's been all over them on that, right? He says, I I don't want you to go and defraud your neighbor. I don't want you to go and defraud your brother, he says in those earlier passages. But now, he says, but as touching brotherly love, you don't need me to write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. What? He's just warning them about their flesh and what not to do toward their brother, not to defraud their brother. And then he says, but touching brotherly love, I don't even need to address it. That doesn't make sense if you just read it like that. If, he, if you have brotherly love, you're not going to steal his wife. If you have brotherly love, uh, you, you, you are going to do what's good for your neighbor because he's your neighbor, he's your brother. So we have Paul on one hand warning against fornicating and defrauding a neighbor and living in concupiscence. Comp- <laughs> and then we have him saying, but in terms of brotherly love, you guys are the best. That doesn't make any sense. If they were having struggles with fornication in the, in the flesh, he would have said, I condemn your brotherly love. You are not evidencing that love as a verb in your life. But that's not what he does. He gives us two things that are in absolute contradiction to each other. Why? I couldn't find an answer, so I created one myself. And I think it's good. I really do, I think it, it, I think it makes sense. He not only says that that you're doing good with brotherly love he says and you need and indeed do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia but we beseech you brethren that you increase more and more. So here's my question. Why are they in need of instruction and direction to avoid lusting heavily for what is not theirs it's coveting really and to avoid fornication but, and, to, and from defrauding their neighbor, their brother, it says. We've heard all that in the, in the passages we discovered. But they are filled, according to Paul, with brotherly love from God to the point that Paul does not need to even address the subject with them. How do you reconcile that? Here's the insight. In verses 3 through 6, Paul is addressing the brotherhood of man. He's saying, I would have you abstain from fornication, and I'm going to put in parentheses, with the brotherhood of man. And I would have every vessel know to possess his vessel in sanctification, not in the lust of concupiscence, uh, which the Gentiles, which know not God. Again, don't have lust toward the Gentile world out there, the brotherhood of man, those who are not Christian. That no man go beyond defraud his brother in any manner. He's talking there about the brotherhood of man. Your neighbor, anybody, non-believer, do not defraud them because that the Lord is the avenger of such. Then conversely, Paul adds, but touching brotherly love, he's talking about believers. You need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another of believers. And indeed, you do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. A person was so filled with brotherly love, they would never defile their neighbor. But these believers, Paul is saying, were filled with brotherly love to each other, believers in the faith, and they would never defraud one another. But, so he, but he's warning them in verses 3 on, on through uh, six. He's warning them, but don't go get involved in desiring fornication and all those things with the outside world. That's that's how we can reconcile the this seemingly uh, contradictory statement. Is that brother Adelphos is used the same time, but Adelphos in the first sense means your 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 human brother, right? And so we know that the the human brother brother of man, sister of man, is used in Scripture. In Malachi 2.10, it says, Have we not all one Father? Has not God one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? There are uh, passages, 1 Corinthians 8.6 says, But to us there's one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. So we know that in terms of creations, we are brothers and sisters. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong to call somebody who is a uh, non-believer your brother because we are in a family relationship through the human race to them. But in harmony with the uh, explanation that they have brotherly love, he's talking about the brothers at Delphos in the faith. And he says, you have that. You're doing great with that. But watch out how you are thinking and treating people outside the faith. It would be akin to somebody who says, I would never have an affair with somebody in my congregation, but I would certainly go to a whore in Vegas who's not a believer and doer. You see, that's, that's what he's saying. Inward brotherly love to believers, you're doing great. But I'm warning you against these other things, which are against your brothers who are of the world. In verse 10, he does say, listen, you are, in fact, he goes on and he says, uh, even in Macedonia, your, your brotherly love is great. Showing he's talking about to believers. All right, at verse 10, he says, uh, I want you to greatly love each other more and more. And, and then he says at verse 11, that you study to be quiet and to do your own business and to work with your own hands as we command you. And so to study, to be uh, quiet means study, to live a peaceful life, to be content with peace in your life. It doesn't mean study so that you'll shut up. It means live a peaceable life. And then he says, uh, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, this is not, this command is not found in acts, but to work with one's own hands does not mean you have to do manual labor. It means working with own hands means not living off the benevolence of others. You're in a body of believers. Times are tough. Work with your own hands and don't live off what other persons in the faith are, can give you. And he says that you'll walk honestly toward them that are without, meaning those who are not of the faith will look at you and they'll see you as someone who walks honestly, and that you will have a lack of nothing, meaning that if you take this advice from me, you won't be lacking in food and everything else. And which uh, appears to suggest that by earning their own keep, they uh, would engage with non believers in an honest way and provide for their own needs. At that point, we're stopping for today. Next week, we enter into verse 13 through the end of the chapter, which are phenomenal insight, doctrinal passages. And they're all about the second coming and they're all about the resurrection. And there are five or six passages but your mind's going to be blown by what Paul says here. And that's, that's kind of the difference really quickly. We go through letters that are talking about, you know, how to do this and that, applicable to then. We come to some advice that has to do with them and us. And then we come to chunks of insight and doctrine. And that's what we're going to get next week. So let me pray with you and we'll get out of here. Lord, bless these people who are tuning in and watching. Help us to move forward with your spirit to guide us and move us and direct us. And uh, we just pray for this in Jesus' name, amen.